Socks on 35th is next. Doors open on the left. How's it going, everybody? My name is Duke Coughlin, and welcome to the Socks on 35th podcast. We are back with another exciting episode covering your Chicago White Sox. We will be joined by Carson Fulmer here in a bit, but for now, I'm joined by our panelists, Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. Gentlemen, how are we doing? We've been doing more of these interviews recently, and it feels like we're joined by Nick Nostrini and Carson Fulmer, but for now, here's the Three Stooges. Uh, <laughs> so... It's always been a fun little intro for these, but this is an exciting conversation. I think anyone who's followed me for a little bit knows I've long been a fan of Falmer and have gone to ridiculous lengths to defend him at times, but very, very exciting episode here. And I, I truly do hope fans enjoy it because it's something I feel like we haven't heard a lot from is Falmer's side of the story. I feel like th- this is one where... Not a lot of podcasts about it or not a lot of appearances for him either. So it's an exciting thing for all of us. Yeah, it's a good run of interviews for us and just episodes in general. Definitely getting the appetite for baseball up, which is good. But like Jordan, excited for the episode. I mean, Carson Fulmer has obviously had a very interesting career and in that he's bounced around so much over the last few years. But I think that actually gives a really cool perspective on the game, especially compared with, you know, some of the other guys we're interviewing, like Nick Mistrini, who is where Fulmer was in a, in a sense, you know, many years earlier. So definitely just a cool time for us as a podcast. And I hope that the listeners enjoy it too. And for the record, I want to tell our dedicated listeners that we did try to convince Jordan to wear the Carson Fulmer jersey and we were immediately shot down. We, we tried. We tried to convince him to hang it up in the background. Wasn't going to happen. But I just want to let you guys know that we tried. We're thinking about you guys out there. I proudly display it on social media. Like I, I am an unashamed Carson Fulmer fan, uh, and and I don't think anything about this interview changed that for me. So no, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You want to know what? I wore number fifty one in high school in football. Carson wore number fifty one. We're blood brothers. We'll be getting to that interview here in a minute. But before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcast. Also, be sure to check out the website, Socks on 35th. Maybe dig up that uh, Carson Fulmer article from Jordan Lazowski from 2019. As well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Socks on 35th. All right, we've talked enough. You've heard our wonderful voices. Now, let's go listen to uh, somebody who's actually touched grass on a major league field, Mr. Carson Fulmer. All right, and we are now joined by former White Sox pitcher Carson Fulmer. Carson, I always like to say that I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be able to come on the podcast with us. How's it going out there, buddy? What is Carson Fulmer up to these days? Oh, man. Like I mentioned to you guys earlier, I'm a, I'm a new dad, so I'm trying to get the hang of that whole thing. Man, honestly, just continuing to play baseball, get myself ready for spring training. And, you know, hell, about an hour ago, I just finished throwing about 100 pitches in a live, so... I'm trying to do everything I can to continue to stay ready and hopefully uh, get another shot at this thing this year. Just because pitchers and catchers aren't reported yet doesn't mean that Carson Fulmer can't start uh, warming up the rocket. So, <laughs> no, I, I haven't stopped since the season ended. So I just carry on through the off season. Always like to ask some of our guys that have played baseball, whether it's um, at the beginning of their career or in the middle of the career, like you are. What was the moment where you started to kind of realize that this could be something you could actually really do, Carson? Well, growing up, I played, 
everything I could possibly get my hands on, right? I loved being outside. I loved playing with my friends. I loved, you know, just being outside in general. So any sport was appealing to me. One thing that I loved doing the most out of anything in sports related was throwing. So I knew that that was either football or baseball or whatever I could get my hands on, honestly. But throwing an object was something that I really enjoyed doing and was good at it. But I never thought I would play in college, let alone in professional sports. I grew up in a household that was very book smart, right? My dad was an attorney. My brothers have been very successful in their careers. So school in itself was the main focus. And I wouldn't say sports kind of were not looked down on, but it was something that I, growing up, never thought I would be involved with throughout my career. So keep a long story short, I, I played growing up, played a lot of sports. And then when I got into high school, I uh, went to a couple of tryouts, ended up throwing pretty hard. So I looked at it as, you know, trying to find an opportunity that I could help my parents out financially to go to school and get a scholarship and go from there. I loved baseball. It's my my first love. It was the sport that I was best at and luckily it gave me an opportunity to play at Vandy, which was good academically and athletically. So honestly, I was extremely happy about going to play baseball in college, let alone to get a scholarship. And, you know, I, I never had intentions or thought that I would ever play professional baseball. So helping my parents financially was was kind of that that moment of, all right, maybe I can take this thing to the next level and get my school paid for, you know, at a, at a good institution like that. And then, you know, professionally was was kind of secondary at that point. Just Vanderbilt in general, too. That's seen as like a very highly credited university, you know. Maybe the football team, maybe not, maybe not the greatest, <laughs> unless your name's Jay Cutler. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, on top of that, Vanderbilt's a great baseball program. So the fact that mm-hmm. you were able to not only get an incredible education at a very highly respected school, but you're also playing for one of the best programs in all of college. So that is it's really, really double positive, you know? Definitely, definitely. I mean, you got to look at it, too. I mean, like any student athlete, let's say they go to Vandy or they go to Stanford or, you know, Harvard or any of these big time academic schools, they not necessarily I mean, I had good grades in high school, but I didn't have the grades to get in there just academically, you know, speaking. So I had to use sports as leverage. And a lot of guys should do that. I mean, that's that's something that is unique and guys do it all the time. I mean, why, why not take advantage of that? What was it like? having those initial conversations with those who reached out to you from the coaching staff. Cause you, like you said, you were someone who didn't necessarily expect to go to college and play baseball. And most times when that happens to guys, they hear from division two, II, division three schools, not one of the top, if not the top division one program in at the NCAA. What was that? I guess, what were those, some of the emotions like for you being like, Whoa, this is Vanderbilt calling me. This isn't just anybody in terms of playing baseball. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a cocky person or guy that brags or anything like that. But I mean, I, I was very lucky. I, I pretty much could pick where I wanted to go to school. Um, what a lot of people don't know is I took my time with the recruiting process. Right, I went. I'm very old school at a lot of things that I do, and the recruiting process for college was about as old school as it get. Right, so I, I literally committed to Vandy the last day I possibly could my senior year of high school. Right. So I, I essentially milked the whole process. Right. I, I went to and played the, you know, the, the high school circuits and I played, you know, the perfect game, all American game and, and did all of that. But what I wanted to do the most was I wanted to take all my official visits. 
right? I wanted to do something that kids are only, you know, they, they commit their sophomore year of high school and then they wait two years to take their official and that's all they're going to do. For me, I took all five of my official visits, right? I did them on consecutive weekends. And I kind of had a feeling that I was down to a couple of schools that I ended up actually playing against quite a bit when I was in college, but I had a feeling that Vandy was the right pick. So I, I saved that for my last college official visit towards the end of that whole thing. And, and man, I was right. I mean, I had a blast for five straight weekends, but I also knew that Vandy was going to be the right place. So it wasn't, it wasn't that hard to uh, you know, make that decision. Let's talk a bit about your time at Vandy because as you know, we all know, I mean, maybe some people listening don't remember or aren't aware, but your performance on the mound there was exceptional. And ERA under two in 270 innings, I mean, in, in that conference at that school was just ridiculous. But even beyond just on the field, you know, what are some of your favorite memories of college, whether it was on or off? Oh, man. Um, obviously, I the one person that's exhausted the most to me is obviously Corbs. I mean, the guy is unbelievable like i am biased obviously but i not only think that he's going to go down as the best college coach of all time but he uh i mean still to this day he's like my second dad right i I stay in contact with with him all the time and he's definitely a resource that i that i lean on if i could i would do it daily but you know i know he has another job to do so first and foremost him he he built me from the ground up he challenged me he you know, got the most out of me. And, and luckily, you know, it worked for all the right reasons, right? We won, he developed me, he gave me a chance to get a degree at that institution. He made me into the man who I am today. I could go on and on, but he, I, I, I owe him everything. Um, as you probably can, or I can say, you know, 100% of the guys that go there would, would say the same thing. What I obviously, my time there, I loved winning, right? I still to this day, I love, I'm very competitive. I love to win. Winning was fun. You know, that is what made it, but we weren't able to stay off campus, right? That was a rule of ours, right? So we had to stay in dorms and campus on campus there. And we pretty much 80% of the team stayed on the same floor. So a lot of the memories that I have with rooming with Dansby and having Walker right down the hallway and having a team that was so close, those were the memories that I enjoyed the most now a lot of those stories can't be told they got to be you know kept in house because their majority of them are pretty explicit but i mean the three years there was the best three years of my life hands down we had a feeling you might say that about some of the stories um (laughs) but when when you think about tim corbin and what he has done at vanderbilt all this time you know you say you owe everything to what has made him not only such a great coach currently but for such a long time and with so many guys like what is it about him and the staff he builds that breeds so much success time after time after time year after year well a lot of it's i mean I, there if you go to a practice right we have an open gate policy if you guys go to wherever in nashville please go to a practice it's it's amazing i mean down to the the minute to the second right we're pretty much like robots out there to be honest but a lot of that i mean that that obviously is in itself but we, if you, I don't know if you guys have seen, we have a, we have a classroom um, upstairs in our facility. We spend a ton of time in there, right? We, we have guest speakers. We have former guys that have been in the program that can come and talk to the guys. We have a plethora of resources, just 
he takes such pride in and making sure that the whole team is on the same page and we are moving in the right direction, right? We're always moving in a positive direction. We download on all of our, we, we, we did when I was there, we downloaded on all of our games, we downloaded on practice, we watched film, like there was such an emphasis on that. And a lot of us, at least on the team, were, were visual learners, right? So he, he understood that and, and was able to give us that platform. But there's so many things that make that guy so special. He, he's got like a, a sixth sense, man. Like he gets it. He knows his players. He knows your aunt that came and visited on this day. And she, you know, like, I, I can't really explain it. He, he, he's got everything. He, he does it the right way. He, you know, most importantly, gets the most out of his players, right? He knows exactly what screw to turn to get under your skin a little bit and, and kind of kind of piss you off, right? In order to get the most out of you. And he does it in a way where teammate confrontation ends up being a positive and some it's it's amazing. And he goes out and recruits the right guys for the program, right? Right. Guys that are gonna fit, guys that are gonna develop and really just buy into the system. So man, I I, I mean he's he's done it for such a long time and there's a reason for it. It's it's just there's so many things that make some good. When you see that level of success like sustained for as long as he's had it too. It really just goes to show like the type of guy and the type of leader that he is. And, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, maybe you can attest to this, you know, there's players who really like an authoritarian style. There's players who really like a, a loose style. You know what I mean? Where your manager is your friend. But, you know, I think a lot of that gets thrown out the window, at least from what I see. And you just need a genuine leader of men. And it sounds like that's exactly what he was. Yeah, I mean, he he wants you, I, I think, looking back on it, he wants you to be comfortable in a very uncomfortable environment, right? So basically, a lot of guys that haven't played in the rain, like we're going to practice in the rain, we're going to play in the rain, we're, whether you like it or not, it's going to happen, right? And you're going to be, you're going to be fine. If it's public speaking, if it was him showing up to one of our 8 a.m. classes and sitting in the corner making sure that everybody was accountable. I mean, that, that's just stuff that he, he felt like he had eyes in the back of his head, honestly. There wasn't a situation that we weren't ready for. Let me just put it that way. And because of that, you end up getting to the end of your third year. You end up a top 10 draft pick by the Chicago White Sox. What was that process like? I guess, when did you know that you were going to be selected by the White Sox? And then even though you knew, I guess, once your name finally was called, what what was that feeling like for you? Given that, like you told us, you didn't even think you were going to be at that point. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, the I relieved my freshman year, and then when I halfway through my sophomore year, I started starting again, and that's obviously where the value shows, right? And you know, being drafted is is starting, right? Seeing that oh, I was a short guy, I always was knocked on. You know, I don't know if this guy's going to stay healthy. I don't know if he can do it. I don't know if he can perform at this level. It really internally it pissed me off, right? Because I I I wanted, I was there. You know, I was with so many competitive guys that I felt like really pushed me in a way that got the most out of me, which was beneficial. But honestly, when I started, I, I remember starting against Arkansas for my first starting my college career and I was like basically telling myself you know this is where you can make or break it right you're given this opportunity you can go out and pitch well and continue to stay a starter or you can just go back to to you know helping the team out in the bullpen which I was fine with but that's where I saw the value right into the draft because you 
you're in college. The next step is pro ball, right? And see if you're going to be good enough to play. And I ended up starting and doing really well. And it kind of took off there. But Corbs did a really good job of making sure that the pro side of things was secondary, right? I mean, we obviously had our meetings. I remember meeting with the White Sox and and loved it, um, loved them. But I, I really didn't know how high I was going to go. I didn't think that – I didn't have an idea because Corbs kept that so secondary, right? You're here to win. You're here to, to help perform and help us advance. But at the end of the day, if you do that, then you're going to put yourself in a good position to get drafted. So – talking to my agent or advisor at the time. And, you know, I had a pretty good idea that I would go in the first round, but I, I didn't think I'd be a, a top 10 pick, which was, was, a, was a pretty cool experience. And it's cool that he almost kept you level-headed of, yeah, Corbin knows maybe a little bit more than you do, and it kind of keeps you focused, keeps yeah. you from thinking too much about things you can't even control. Exactly, yeah. No, he, he, knew, he knew everything. I think he talked to a lot of the teams too. I mean, he's obviously a great resource, but... Man, if, if you win and you go out and perform, man, I think everything else kind of will take care of itself. Exactly. Once your name's called, once you sign the contract with the team and you're in the organization, what are the, some of the immediate changes you noticed jumping from college baseball to professional baseball? Things that you know really went well, things that really didn't go well, things that are hard for guys who are just coming into it? Yeah, so what I wanted to prove to the organization was or the biggest knock on me was, can this guy stay healthy? And I had a max delivery. I had things flying all over the place, which I still do today. Not as much, but that was my biggest knock, right? So my, my main focus when I got drafted was, I want to finish the season in college. I basically want to go straight to the AZL in, in Glendale. I want to get in the organization. I want to play. I'm going to try to get as close as I can to that 200 inning mark, right? Because I want to show this organization that I'm durable and that I can go out and pitch and pitch well. So I remember, you know, talking to Rick Hahn and a bunch of other guys when I got drafted. And I think they were kind of on the edge of like, hey, maybe we'll shut this guy down and give him an offseason to kind of get ready for spring training. And I basically said, you know, screw that, dude. No, like we're, I'm already built up. I got 135 innings or whatever. Like, let's go, man. Like, you drafted me here. I want to make an impact. Let's go. So I remember leaving Omaha and going home for a day to basically wash my clothes. And I got on a plane. I went to Glendale, stayed there for a week, and then went to Winston-Salem in high A and pitched pretty well, right? The adjustments I had to make, obviously, those guys can hit a fastball and those guys can hit a curveball, right? I wasn't throwing my curveball 50 feet and getting the swing at it. It's a whole different story, right? So I had to eventually develop a changeup and kind of do all that. But my main goal was I want this organization to know that like come spring training in next year, I don't want to be pushed to an innings limit. I don't want to be shut down. Like I want a full year and I want to know this team like can count on me if they need me, which the following year when I got called up halfway through, they they needed me. So Process was fast, right? It was probably a little too fast, but at the end of the day, I was 21 years old and get a, and get a call up. Like, I can't really uh, complain too much. So I have one question before all of this. You mentioned it too, like the max delivery. How did you develop such, and violence not the right word, but such a max effort delivery? Like, I guess, where did that come from? I've always been curious. Yeah, so the, the preset foot, right? The foot that's on the rubber itself, I got that from David Price. 
gave me consistency every pitch, right? I knew my foot was going to be in the same spot every time I'd lift my leg up and go down to home plate. I moved fast, right? I, that's just how my body worked, right? It wasn't, it wasn't traditional when I was with Scott Brown and Vandy, my pitching coach. That's just what worked best for me. That's how I was efficient. That's how I got down the mound. That's how I generated power was, was that, right? It wasn't a very traditional Greg Maddox type delivery. Right, I needed to to do that. So that was one thing that I, I don't think that me and the organization really saw eye to eye from. Right, they they saw that max delivery and they're like, man, I don't know if this is gonna really meet up with our expectations. Let alone if you kind of look at the research, like that's how I move the best. Right, that's how I stay healthy. That's how I take a lot of stress off my arm is moving that fast. So it was a bunch of the we, we were butting heads. I was I was pissed. I didn't want to change. I didn't want to do that. But at the end of the day, it was like, do I buy into this new system? Do I buy into what Coop's saying? Do I want to create a good relationship with these guys so I can move through the system? Yes. So I gotta buy into this system. I gotta change. You know, I gotta I gotta do what they want me to do. And that that's when it kind of kind of went south for me a, a little bit. But hey, it was my decision, right? I, I was the one that that did it, and um, you know, I'm still still fighting it today. You, you even just alluded to it a little bit by saying you might have moved a little too fast through the minors. And, you know, for those listening, that's, you know, about 100 innings pitched in the minors. And all of a sudden you're facing Albert Pujols in your debut and narrowly missing Mike Trout from what I remember. So my, my question for you is, what was it like to move that fast through the minors? I know you just said it might have been a little too fast, but in the moment at the time, did you feel that way at all? Or were you just purely focused on, on pitching and you thought it was the right cadence? At the time, I mean, any player that is stuck in the minor leagues, they always say, you know, I, well, I pitch good. You know, I should get moved up. I should get moved up. You know, the organization's telling them, like, even so, I play with guys. Why am I not getting moved up? I don't understand. The organization's telling me that I need more time here. I tell them now, dude, you need more time. Like, just trust what they're trying to do, right? They're, they're doing this for a reason. And a lot of guys know how fast I moved up, right? And they don't have much of a reply because they think I'm coming from a good place. But for me, what the biggest jump was, was how fast the game was. There would be outings where I'd go out there. I don't even, I don't even remember half of them because it was, it just had, I got behind guys. I walked guys. I gave up a homer. All of a sudden I look up and it's four runs on the board. It's like, how did that happen? Right. When you go from high A to double A and you get a full year and you go, you pitch well enough, maybe repeat double A, you go to triple A. That stuff it's because the game is moving fast per level, right? Every level you go to, there's guys with more experience. You have to pitch, you know how to pitch. You have to rely on certain things. You have to, you know, you throw a breaking ball. You got to throw another one. You got to throw a breaking ball on a 3-0 count. It's just a whole different speed of game that I wasn't ready for, right? I had the stuff for it, right? I threw high 90s and had good off speed, but the mental side of being able to watch Chris Sale and watch John Danks and those guys that have done it for so long do it where like being able to take a moment and then being able to stop it or have bases loaded and give up one run instead of three runs. Like that was stuff I needed to learn early on um, that would have been beneficial. But as any player, if they were in my shoes, yeah, it deserved to be there at 21. Hell, I had the stuff to do it. I was a first round pick. Why not? Right. But looking back on it now, it's, I don't know. I mean, I, I thought I was ready at the time, but maybe I wasn't. I don't know. But that was, yeah, that was all the organizationals. You know, that, that was their, 
decision and I was ready. I showed up every day ready to compete. So can't take anything from me. And on top of that, all you're trying to, as you mentioned, kind of tinker with not even just tinker, like make gigantic overhauls to how you throw a baseball. It's not something that, you know, you necessarily expect to be able to do overnight while still learning just how to deal with this situation, how to get out of this jam, how to prevent one run from turning into a blow up inning. It's a lot going on. Maybe you don't realize it at the time, but probably easier to look back on and say there, there was a lot I was trying to do. Exactly. And especially in that division at the time too, right? Kansas City was on fire. You had Cleveland and you had Minnesota with Maurer and Dozier and all these guys that have had success. I mean, it was tough division, man, you know, at the time. But we were kind of in a playoff race and, you know, I I I was ready and, you know, wish I uh would have had a little more time. But at the end of the day, when I was in the big leagues, I was I was extremely happy to be there. For sure. Yeah. And on that note, actually, do you remember how you felt? I mean, I'm sure you do before, during, after your actual debut, just how did that, that day go? And again, it was two scoreless innings against the Angels, so a very successful debut. Yeah, it's funny. I, I got a funny story for you. So I, I'm sitting on the bullpen, not saying a word, right? You kind of just stay out of everybody's way. It's just part of what you do, I guess, as a young guy coming up, especially during you know that time. I actually warmed up before. I, well, every, I, first thing I called up, they, you know, Coop was like, hey, you're going to get in there. You're going to get in there the next day, whatever. So I was ready to go. Well, the night before my debut, they get it, they call down and they go, Yeah, you can film her hot. I think it was like eighth inning. We were down like three or four runs. And in Anaheim, the bullpens, they're obviously stacked, but at the very bottom of the so it's like the turf, the back pad, and then there's a piece of concrete that's at the bottom, right? It splits the the ground from the the cushion. And so they call down, they're like, hey, Carson, get hot, whatever. So I get up and I start going, my first throw that I ever made. Right, I crow hop down the mound. I threw it as hard as I possibly could. I spike it right into the ground, and it skips and it hits off this con that concrete bar, and it ricochets over to our bullpen. You know where the guy was sitting on the bench, and it hits our bullpen guy right in the eye. <laughs> so he goes, and he's like, oh, so I'm sitting there like, I mean, I haven't even thrown a pitch yet, and I got this guy's eye is completely swollen shut. I'm like. These guys hate me, right? Now I'm really uncomfortable. I don't know what to. I don't know what to do now. So, keep a long story short, I didn't sleep very well that next day, and then obviously the next day I go and make my debut. Debut, but I was there, man. Let it go. I mean, I got nothing to lose at this point, you know. So I remember everything about it, and luckily it went pretty well. Now I'm actually playing for that organization now, so it it brings back a lot of memories. Uh, you know, going on that field, especially this last year. So you've bounced around a lot between, as you mentioned, between some organizations, you're with the Angels now, and over the past couple of years, you've been with um, quite a few teams as you've continued to remain in the game within organizations. What are the emotions like of dealing with that? Because I feel like, you know, you spent a lot of time with the White Sox, then from there, bounced around a little bit, and now you're you're still working through everything as the, as, in terms of, getting back there and staying within the game. Is there emotions to that or is it, do you have to view it as part of the business of baseball, I guess? Well, it's not the best feeling, man. I'm going to be completely honest. I mean, it's, it's the worst. It's the worst feeling making a team and being sent down. It's, it's the worst being called up for a few days and getting sent down. It's coming in and being designated 
and it's a great feeling being claimed, but then designated by them a week or two later. Like that year in 20, when I left the Sox, it was that COVID year, and I was on five different teams in, you know, in a month or a month and a half, you know? So it was, it's tough, man, let alone the team that drafted you and all the relationships that you had. I mean, that was a, that was a really, really tough day. Now it's part of the business now. It's happened to me so many times now that like, it's going to be fine and hopefully you get picked up and, and do it all over again. But it is part of the business, right? Teams need arms, teams need spots. I mean, it's just part of it. But I mean, at the end of the day, you feel like you let the team down and, you know, it's something that I hope I don't experience too many more times, but it's definitely one of the worst feelings you can have in the sport, that's for sure. And as you're going through it too, you know, obviously you're trying to, I'm sure the new team's trying to be a little bit more reassuring than the last one because those conversations are a little bit easier than the ones where they're saying, hey, we're letting you go or this and this is happening. How did different organizations try and, implement a plan for you to say, Hey, this is what we're trying to do. And were there any that resonated with you a little bit more than others? Or was it sort of like after a while, you're just trying to implement what you know works for you and eventually work your way back into the big leagues? Yeah. I mean, you, you got to now you got to stick to what you do best, right? You got to stay. I mean, I, I trust is a really tough word in this profession. I don't trust a lot of people. In baseball, I mean, I have my handful of guys that I really lean on, but organizations, you know, they they tell you one thing and then another thing happens two or three hours later. I mean, it's just, it's, it's part of the game, but controlling what you can control, as cliche as that sounds, is all you can really do, right? Be ready to pitch. I base my whole career on availability, right? I've never been out, knock on wood, for an arm injury or, or anything like that. I've I just want to be available for a team, right? If they need somebody to go and throw. In, in terms of a plan, when I was with the Sox, I came up as a starter, was drafted as a starter. You know, hey, we're going to send you down and build you up. And then I get called up as a reliever, you know, a week later or whatnot. So it, it's just kind of, you just make sure you're prepared for whatever for the day, right? And whatever happens, you kind of have to adapt to it. So being able to adapt to certain situations and being available is, is my bread and butter. The situation you're describing is not an easy one to go through. You know, you're saying it's because it's a business, it's hard to trust what everyone's saying. It's one thing happens, two hours later, something completely different. Who are those people, whether it's maybe guys you played with previously or previous coaches before you even got into the organization, or it's family, friends, what have you, who are the people that you've really been able to lean on and kind of been that support base for you? Oh, man. I mean... Obviously, Corbs. I mean, I talk to him all the time about things on and off the field. But early on, it was Chris Sale. I grew up in the same hometown as him in Lakeland. You know, I knew him prior to playing with the Sox. And he was obviously a great guy and a leader on the team that I trust. The Vandy group is obviously so tight with Walker and Dan's. They're some of my best friends. I mean, those guys I talk to all the time. It's just at this point, it's it's being able to have somebody that you can just vent to and just talk baseball with and, and kind of just gradually work through certain situations. You know, those two guys haven't really struggled too much, right? They, in our, they're in a great position. You know, I, I don't think they really understand, you know, kind of what I'm going through or what I've gone through in the past. But at the end of the day, I mean, a guy to talk to is all you really want. So my inner circle is very small. Again, I trust only a certain amount of people, but 
I try to stay in touch with as many people as I possibly can. You brought up Chris Sale a couple of times and just kind of circling back to like when you were talking about when you first came up and just kind of how fast the game goes. You know, you look at Chris and like he's just got a different mentality. Like I, I feel like he just sees the game in a different way. I almost kind of noticed a smirk there. I don't know if Chris is just like that different type of guy, but um, he definitely comes off that way. You know, I, I think you see like the Chris Sales, the Madison Bumgarners, the the Max Scherzers of the world where like, yeah, you know, they might get pissed, but like it's it looks like it's just so hard to phase him at time. Were you able to like soak any of that up? Like just kind of seeing like how they go on like a day to day basis and see like how they handle themselves in like tough situations like that. Chris Sale is an amazing individual, right? He's sensitive to a point with younger players, right? He gets it. He's been through it. I mean, a, a ton of people respect him. I, I mean, I, I was able to spend, he, he included me with pretty much anything that he did off the field, especially on the road when I was up, right? Him and Danks. I mean, I, those guys were amazing. But I, I would always, when I got to the field, I didn't really talk to him very much, right? Because he was always doing something. He was always locked in. He was always preparing for that day. But what I, what I saw the most was how even the veteran guys on the team, they knew when it was his day to go, like, he's going to show up. He's going to get us deep in the game. And no one has to worry about that, right? Like, we can count on this guy for anything. And you look at any of the guys that are in the top of the game, right? Scherzer and DeGrom. I haven't personally been around those guys, but I mean, the guys in the bullpen going out there, like, man, we not necessarily going to take off to the seventh, but like, I mean, it's their day. Like, this is our horse, right? And everybody knows that. So it was really good to be around an ace like that and a guy that treated me like I was on the team for 10 years, right? He's just an amazing guy and, and made it very comfortable for me. He just has it. I don't know like what I, I mean. He just had like, he's, the golden goose, right? He's he's it. Like he's just got it. And there's a reason why he's had so much success. It's very reassuring to hear that because I've heard that throughout the course of the years of just like how much Chris is just like a, just a good teammate, just a good guy. You know, he he definitely comes off intense like that, but it's good to actually hear it, you know, and I'm glad he like took the initiative to actually include a guy when, you know, he didn't have to, you know, he was a ace of a staff, you know, it, it could have been the last thing on his mind. And Glad he kind of uh, brought you into it. He'll stand up for you, you know, like no matter who you are, if you're on the team, I mean, he, you can count a hundred percent that he's got your back and he'll stand up and fight for you for sure. I mean, I've seen it multiple times for different guys. I mean, he, what you see is what you get. And, you know, if he needs to say it in a, in a tough way, he will. I mean, he's not, he's not scared of, of anything. Definitely rare breed. Definitely an old school guy. So, I mean, what's where you're at in your career, man? You're going to be going into spring training. Sounds like you're still very prepared. Like, just throughout the course of this, I can just sense the competitive nature in you. Like, it's still, it, it sounds like it's still burning hot, man. Like, you, you are ready to go out there and really prove yourself to a team, prove that you belong, and you want to be able to be somebody that a team can depend on. So, as you're heading into 2024, whether it's like a small goal or a big goal, what are you really trying to gain out of this season? Well, I mean, even going back to last year, I mean, I got released by Seattle and I didn't have a job for two and a half, three months. You know, I, I was luckily assigned with, with the Angels. I mean, that is what is keeping me going right now, right? 
I never thought that would happen, and it did. And it definitely sparked a, a new flame in, in, in my career and has motivated me in ways that has never motivated me in, in any way. You know, it's small goals. I, I don't know. I made it up again last year. You know, there's a goal I have every year. I want to be in the big leagues every year that I'm in pro ball, which I have been, even dating back to 2016, my first year. I've been in the big leagues every single year up until now, even if it was for a short stint. Obviously, want to keep that going. I've never spent a, a full year in the big leagues. That's obviously a, a big goal of mine because I feel like, you know, I've I'm, I'm been searching for that consistency. But I don't know. I proved to the organization last year um, I was called up and I threw three times in five days. I threw roughly probably around 200 plus pitches in five days for them. I wanted to prove to them that I'm, I've still got it and I can compete and I'm available, right? That's what my, again, my bread and butter is, is I'm durable and I can be available to pitch any day. And I had success last year, right? Um, I think that it's obviously a good fit and I'm just, I'm ready to go. I got a seven month old now, right? Boy, I want to have him see me play. Um, I want him to have those memories too. And I just need this uh, dad strength to kick in here, you know, before, before it's too late. But no, man, it's, I'm blessed. I've had a long career. Obviously, I haven't had the time that I probably should have had, but hell, man, you never know. This year could, could change everything. And, uh, you know, I could be on my way to having a really successful big league career. Dad strength from all accounts is a very real thing. You know, when you just see some of the performances that you, you get when someone's a, a, a father, like it, it's definitely coming, man. Like, I, I mean, I don't know if it's going to happen. You know, maybe, maybe you get like that one gray hair you see in the side of your head. And you're like, yeah, okay, <laughs> all right. I'm just trying to keep it, to be honest, man. <laughs> you know, but it's no, it, it's all good, man. I, I, I want to keep it going. I'm not giving up, right? I mean, I was close to retiring at, at one point last year. I mean, I thought it was, was all done. So, oh man, I got nothing to lose. And that's how I kind of pitch now, which is even, which is even better. So, no, I'm looking forward to it, man. I can't wait. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And I, I, I think it says a lot that e even, even throughout the seasons, you know, you're talking about not being able to finish a full major league season. Teams are still, they obviously still see something. You know I mean? They, they see the raw talent. They see a guy that's going in there ready to compete. I mean, dude, pitching three times in five days, that shows you're, willing to do whatever it takes to help the team, man. And there's always going to be a place on that roster man, at, at the end of the day. Definitely. Yeah. No, I mean, I, that's what I think has kept me around for so long is my durability. So soreness, something's tight, strain, whatever, man, I'll find a way to get through it. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. Right. And, uh, you know, I want to go out and compete and, and earn my innings. That's, that's the most important thing to me right now. And I'm sure it's something that's created some fans for you along the way, too. Uh, certainly amongst us three as well. Definitely something we'll be uh, following and rooting for you wow, throughout the year. appreciate that. Of course. Before we let you go, I know we got you through a ton of topics here, and I think there were some where it's like, it's not fun going down some of the memory lanes. Uh, some are fun, some are not. So we want to end it with a little something more lighthearted. It's nine rapid-fire questions to end. Don't need a huge explanation, just a quick answer, a little bit of everything. So you ready? Right on. All right. First one. Favorite place to eat when you were in Chicago? Probably uh, uh, one of the prime restaurants. First thing you bought with your signing bonus? Uh, car. Nice. What kind of car? I uh, bought a C63 Mercedes. Nice. <laughs> Thin crust or deep dish pizza? Uh, deep dish. 
Early bird or night owl? Early bird, 100%. <laughs> what temp? It's very specific. What temperature do you set your thermostat before you go to bed? 69. Are we alone in the universe? No. <laughs> Texting or calling? Oh, call for sure. I'm, I'm horrible at texting. <laughs> horrible. Yeah. Best recipe you can make. Oh, man. My wife's the cook, dude. She didn't crush me for this, but um, uh, sweet potato and eggs in the morning. Mm, not bad. And finally, what TV show would you like to make an appearance on? Entourage. <laughs> that's a good one, too. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah no, that, that's an awesome one. <laughs> All right, buddy. Really appreciate having you on, man. It's been kind of cool hearing your side of things, you know, because I think fans get lost in like, you know, outside perception of what's happened through a guy's career. And, you know, honestly, man, I don't think a story like yours is something that's completely uncommon in majors. You know, you you see guys that kind of that kind of, you know, start out a little rough and really kind of make a run towards the end. You know, I, I feel like you always see one of those guys in the playoffs where it's like, holy crap, I haven't seen that guy pitch in years. I remember when he was a top prospect and now he's pitching in one of the biggest games probably of his career. Like, that's freaking awesome, you know? So when I inevitably see you pitching in the ALCS next year, I just, I want you to remember <laughs> that you were on Sox on 35th and you hopefully come back. No, absolutely, man. I want guys to, to, to see me on TV and go, man, this guy's still around. Like, that's like the biggest compliment for me, you know? Like, I... I'm still going to still roll, man. I mean, I got, I got nothing to lose. So I appreciate that. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, I appreciate your time, especially with, uh, you know, a seven month old man. That's, uh, it's impressive. You were able to pull this off without, uh, getting the call from the other room. Yeah. No, I, I'm surprised you haven't heard him. He's in, he's in the other room screaming already. <laughs> so he's up from the mat. but no, I appreciate you guys a lot. Thanks again. So once again, that was a great conversation with Carson Fulmer. Carson, I, we really appreciate having you on, buddy. We really appreciate just anybody who's really had a true path in the game. It's it's always really cool to hear about it. And to hear Carson speak as candidly as he did about different things that happened throughout his career, how he handled it. Overall, it was a really good experience, and I think it kind of confirms what a lot of people who kind of understand the mental aspect of sports think when they think of you know situations like Carson it's more than just going out there and throwing a baseball there's so much that goes into it genuinely like I don't know if I could possibly root for this guy more heading into spring training just based on like the shit he's had to deal with in his career and it's it, I'm really glad he's still in the league and still has a chance to prove himself because the story is just it's all too common man People don't respect the mental side of the game. They try to streamline young kids uh, as quick as humanly possible because they see somebody that can throw gas. And um, they wonder why guys just don't pan out to what the expectations were. And uh, again, Carson, if you're listening back, I really, really appreciate what you were telling us. It was it was really good stuff, man. I hope to have him on again. I, I really do. Yeah, and I haven't been shy about the Carson Fulmer fan in me over the years. And, and I think... That conversation kind of confirms why it's you feel good being a fan of somebody like that because they have a very realistic sense of what's happened, what's gone on is very candid, isn't going to try and blow smoke up our asses, essentially. And I think that's something that I can respect, not as a baseball fan, not as Carson Fulmer fan, but as just a human being as well. It's the respect I have for him 
coming on, having this conversation about, hey, yeah, great times at Vanderbilt hasn't really gone the way I wanted, but it's it's that bulldog mentality that I think we can all respect that keeps him going and that I still think makes it very easy to root for guys like that guy. And it's you, you see the sides of the game. You know, he talks about being friends and buddies with Walker Bueller and Dansby Swanson. And those guys can't possibly get what he's gone through. They maybe understand a little bit, but it's not nearly the same. And Ed, it gives me that much more respect for him, uh, again, as a player, as a human being. Yeah, I mean, anything that has gone wrong in his career, so to speak. And also, to be clear, that's so relative, right? Like Carson Fulmer is an extremely successful athlete and human being. We're talking like, purely based on expectations of a first-round draft pick. But regardless, anything that has gone wrong, like, you can't say he didn't try, really. He, he's the kind of pitcher who has tried to reinvent himself so many times who, we've, you know, we've all read the, the articles over the years, listened to the podcast, et cetera, about him. Like, he's clearly a very hardworking guy. I, like you guys, appreciated how candid he was and how he took ownership over the things that did go wrong. But at the same time, I also agree that while, you know, it's big of him and, you know, he's clearly very you know mature, like a classy guy. At the same time, he wasn't put in very great situations. And you would hope that the White Sox and other organizations who do similar things learn from these mistakes over time. Um, I'm personally not 100% sure if they do. Like, you know, it worked with Chris Sale. But that's, you know, Chris Sale is Chris Sale, right? Not everyone can be him. So in the long run, I'm, I'm interested to see how the decisions that are made from a prospect development standpoint in terms of timelines, promotions, et cetera, how that changes over time with pitchers. Because I think, you know, to the points that, that Carson made, he was 21 years old. He just said, yeah, give me the ball. I want to go. But at the same time, it's, the, it's up to the organization to know what's best, really. And you can't just try to keep fitting square pegs into round holes and i i do hope fans that you know had previously gotten to listen to our article or excuse me our interview with nick nestrini now get to look and kind of mirror what both of them were saying you know nestrini spent a significant amount of time when we talked with him talking about the differences things you have to learn at each level how you need to learn how to add this a little bit from high a to or low a to high a this from high a to double a and then having fulmer come on and knowing his history and knowing what he wasn't able to learn. It's I, again, it's conversations we've had as fans for years and years about this. And it's nice to have both Fulmer express his, his journey, but also hear from Nestrini and compare those two. And like, yeah, there's something here that I think Duke, you mentioned that this mental aspect, this developmental aspect of pitching and not just throwing a baseball hard and hoping it all works out. And, and you know, you want to hope the Sox don't continue to make those mistakes, but then you look at Garrett Crochet as an example. That, that's a fairly recent example, too. You hope at some point teams have to stop doing that. But at the same time, it always helps me to feel good to know, you know, he's still getting jobs, and it's because of things analytically behind the scenes that I think We've broken down over the years. Those are still inherent traits, and the bulldog mentality is still there. And I hope that it continues to be something where I Fulmer's only 30. He's still got a long shelf life in the big leagues, and I continue to hope that that continues to happen for him. There's a reason why in boxing they call it the beautiful science because it's, it's so easy for a fan to sit down 
and watch a boxing match and be like, oh, there's just two guys that are, you know, swinging away at each other. And it's it's timing every punch. It is knowing when this guy goes to an uppercut or when this guy goes to a jab or uh, how he responds to the punch that you're throwing. Pitching's no different. Like it is a science. You know, it's not something that can be studied in a laboratory per se, but it is something that there is something happening on every single pitch. It's more than grabbing a baseball and throwing it. And, um, you know, I, I know maybe this episode might have missed the mark for for some fans who uh, maybe just want to look at the idea where it's like, you know, we drafted Carson Fulmer in the first round. It didn't work out for us. At the end of the day, this guy is entering spring training for potentially his eighth MLB season. <laughs> there are few people on the planet who can really say that that's where they're where they are in life right now. So kudos to Carson for coming on. Like I said, dude, I, I don't know if I could root for anybody more. But with that. That's all we have this week for the Socks on 35th podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcast. Also, be sure to check out the website, SocksOn35th.com. Well, following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SocksOn35th to stay up to date with your Chicago White Side. This has been Duke Coughlin, joined as always by Jordan Zaski and Nick Gower. We'll be back eventually when we cover more White Sox baseball. Thank you and go socks. Go socks. Go socks. I was too depressed for some sort of outro. I am still so upset.